This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Ben Korsha. And I'm Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Okay, and we are live. Hello, Daphne. How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing good. We've both been very busy. It's been, uh, we've both sort of uh, changed jobs and we're both now working on this new project with Nova Southeastern University, which is very exciting. But regardless of uh, how exciting the project is, it's been busy, huh? Yeah, I think uh, it's been a it's been a complicated year for everybody, right? But we certainly are going through some <laughs> transitions has. right now. It has, it has. Um, okay, so today is uh, is our third episode. Uh, we have officially released the podcast, and uh, I've been very uh, encouraged by the response we've we've been uh, getting from Twitter, Facebook, and and other platforms. So thank you to everybody who's been uh, downloading the podcast, listening in, and uh, yes, we're we're ready to provide more uh, quality content for you. Absolutely, I think uh, we're we're excited, we're engaged. Uh, we want to engage with our kind of virtual community and get some feedback and um, hear what 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 you guys want to listen to. So today, uh, Journal Club is going to focus on, I guess, two major journals. We're going to go over um, the latest edition of Pediatrics and the latest sort of edition of JAMA Peds. And we're going to focus on the papers that have come out relating uh, to neonatology, obviously. So I guess we can get started. Um, we are going to start with this uh, first page. Uh, paper in pediatrics, the respiratory syncytial virus bronchiolitis complicated by necrotizing enterocolitis, a case series um, by Dr. Arias et al. Um, so this was an interesting case study. So they had identified um, some babies in their unit that um, were infected with RSV bronchiolitis who developed neck. Um, so they went ahead and did a basically chart review to evaluate um, other babies that had bronchiolitis. So uh, they looked at 800 babies with RSV bronchiolitis, 652 babies with non-RSV bronchiolitis, um, and they found uh, that in their group, they had four babies uh, diagnosed with uh, neck, actually in, in, the, in the PICU, the pediatric ICU. Yeah, I think that's that's what really caught my attention because initially I mm -hmm. thought pick you, okay, that doesn't really apply. But mm -hmm. then but then you see 34 babies who were born at between 34 and 39 weeks of gestation that showed up in the PICU at 3 to 6 weeks postnatal age and developing NEC. I think that really um, got me thinking, number one, because we've been so focused on COVID for the past year mm -hmm. that we sort of forgot about RSV somehow. <laughs> and and it's coming back. I mean, I'm, I'm reading more and more posts from people on Twitter saying, oh, I saw a case of RSV here and there. And so it's coming back. And I think it was important for me to remind myself that, yes, there's a lot of complications associated with RSV. And neck is not the one that comes to mind first and foremost, especially um, at such a distant sort of age. I don't know what you mm -hmm. thought about that. 
Certainly. I mean, any, any baby who's kind of term corrected, we, you know, it's, it gets farther and farther off of our, off of our differential. Um, and I think that's what really struck me about this paper. You know, anytime we, we see maybe abdominal distension or feeding intolerance in relation to viral illness, we think, okay, well, there's some sort of ileus. I'm not surprised by that. Um, and that's how all four babies presented. Um, so for me, as we get into this, the takeaway point was really not to ignore kind of those uh, early symptoms of abdominal distension. Um, and and, and they had babies, and they had pretty severe NEC. I mean, they, they documented yeah. that one of them had to get a partial colectomy. One of the patients actually did not make it past uh, this admission to the PICU. So that was that was really an eye opener for me. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. They all had x-ray documentation of either pneumatosis or portal venous gas or both. And these babies were sick. Um, they developed thrombocytopenia. Um, they all had, um, well, those that were tested had elevations in the CRP, which is not something we typically see um, in an RSV infection um, in general. Um and, and so I, I thought that was pretty impressive. Uh, one developed, real, two actually developed kind of multi-organ failure and, and shock um, in relation to their sepsis. And what I think they really clarified, it was really important to me looking through the paper was the babies didn't have these symptoms of shock or hypotension or need for pressors until after their diagnosis, um, because that's what I was that's what I was looking for. So yeah, it, it was it seemed to be the real deal. Yes, yes, it was, and uh, and I was interested also in in sort of this hypothetical framework that they developed. Um, mm-hmm. or that they suggested, I guess, not really developed for the pathogenesis of this RSV-induced neck. And they really went through sort of four elements saying that, number one, the neonate's immature immune system is less able to control viral replication when presented with a high viral load. And number two, they wrote that immune dysregulation favoring production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines are associated with severe lower respiratory tract infections. Number three, they said RSV RNA has been identified in peripheral blood and extrapulmonary manifestations may indicate systemic dissemination of RSV during severe disease. Finally, number four, they wrote, although our patients did not exhibit sign of overt sepsis due to our, uh, they did not exhibit those signs, overt sepsis due to RSV has been described. And I think it's important to remember that because I could, I could sort of see myself facing a similar situation in the NICU where you would have a baby that would have some instability. You would maybe get a viral panel that would diagnose RSV. And if the baby had some mm-hmm. feeding intolerance, you may be tempted to dismiss it and say, well, he's going through a viral infection. Exactly. If you see some lucencies on the KUB, you may say, well, you know, he's just maybe a bit uh, constipated. When in truth, neck is a true entity that has to be thought through mm-hmm. and um and age doesn't really matter i mean we tend to to remember that neck is at like this 30 week sort of mark and and this paper really shows you that there's not that limit it can happen in much older babies and yeah and it it, it gave me a, a lot of food for thought definitely yeah, I also, I, I wonder if we looked at all babies with viral infections, and they did, they did look for babies with bronchiolitis that was um, not diagnosed as RSV, um, but so many other, you know, viral infections that could potentially present present the same way. So just definitely something, like you said, uh, food for thought, it's going to make me think twice about those babies who I think just 
have a little Ilias um, and, and maybe, you know, have me get the film or um, pay more attention to the um, film look uh, more specifically for some of those acute findings. And and it's to, to conclude, I guess, our discussion on this paper, I think it's interesting because when you think of the pyramid of evidence and you think, okay, a case series, what, how useful can a case mm-hmm. series be? I think this was perfectly appropriate in terms of, hey, we're making you aware of this of this rare but yet possible complications of RSV. And uh, it's, it's one of the rare case series, I guess, where you can actually take the evidence and take it directly to the bedside and sort of think a bit differently about problems. So, so I was very, uh, I was very satisfied with that, with that paper. Yeah, I really liked, you know, they said, oh, we have these two cases. That's interesting enough, but they really looked for what, do we have more cases? Um, and they did. So definitely something for us to keep an eye out for. Yeah. So, um, Moving right along to uh, another paper in this edition of, of uh, Pediatrics this month. Um, this paper is called Predicting the Need for Phototherapy After Discharge. It is authored, first author is uh, Dr. Michael Kuznowitz. I hope I'm not uh, butchering that name. Um, this is from uh, uh, his associates in, in, from California. The, 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 the purpose of the paper is really to look at total serum bilirubin around the time of discharge, especially in babies who have not really required phototherapy, and come up with an algorithm or a structure that could help predict the need for phototherapy after discharge. And um, this was, a, uh, this was a, a study that included a ton of babies. I mean, I think it covered 11 Kaiser Permanente Northern California facilities from 2012 to 2017. And they had about, um, about 2,623 infants um, that uh, exceeded post uh, that exceeded phototherapy threshold post discharge. So they looked back at those babies and said, "What were their patterns like before discharge?" And they developed this model that they called Delta TSB. I guess Delta for change in TSB mm-hmm. total serum bilirubin. Uh, and they were able to show that this model had an excellent ability to predict post discharge uh, bili above their phototherapy threshold. So, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that paper. Yeah, you know, I am, um, you know, Billy is something we do every single day, right? Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> right now, and many of our colleagues are seeing newborns uh, in the in the newborn nursery. Um, and, you know, we have a system, right? Most of us are using the same system. It works pretty well. Um, so I, I thought it was interesting that they said, like, you know, could we do something better? Could we do something different? And certainly those of us that work with trainees know that the kind of the two chart system is not that complicated, but it does create some confusion sometimes around around the time of, of discharge, especially if someone doesn't have um, a lot of experience with with working um, with the butani nomograms and the the risk stratification there um what do you it, what do you think how well, how often are, do you use the the risk stratif- stratification i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you a story of when i was a resident um as a resident our program had this policy that all the residents had to attend at least one performance improvement meeting for the hospital mm-hmm. so i had to attend one just to get a sense of how a hospital functions what are they looking at and so on and the the, the one i went to discussed uh readmissions and mm-hmm. pediatrics got slammed because they said, oh, all these babies are coming back with billies and uh, you guys are not improving on the rates of readmission for hyperbilirubinemia. To which my mentor said, we have no way of predicting what the billy is going to do after discharge. We do our best, but we cannot put babies on the phototherapy if they don't meet the threshold. And then they leave and then they meet the threshold. So they come back. So what do you want us to do? 
And I, f- I was totally in agreement with his retorts during that meeting. But it's mm-hmm. true that it has been a sort of um, a dilemma for us, even discharging babies from the NICU. Be like, you know, his belly is like getting so close to threshold. Mm-hmm. Should I get? Should I start some phototherapy just so that when they leave, they don't have to come back? Even though. There's no grounds for us starting phototherapy. So I am very happy that a group has tried at least to create some sense of how can we predict a little bit better what's going to happen after the babies do go home. Yeah, and I I think um, that they're right. It certainly simplifies things just to give a little bit of kind of um, that data. Um, They said that, for example, if babies had a pre-discharge Delta TSB or um, the difference from the phototherapy threshold. Right. So um, I think think that's the important thing. The the Delta, their model, when I initially read the paper, I thought the model was going to be some sort of algorithm that was going to be put through sort of machine learning or artificial intelligence, but actually it was very, very simple. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying this in a demeaning way. I, I, I think the, the highest level of sophistication is simplicity. So mm-hmm. I was very happy that with a simple sort of model, they were able to get the results they, they obtained. And the way they did that is by looking at the bilirubin uh, at the time of discharge and look at the difference between that serum bilirubin and the threshold for phototherapy. And as that threshold for phototherapy and the bilirubin were getting wider and wider apart, the need for phototherapy post-discharge was lower and lower and lower. As that, like you said, as that number increases, obviously your your risk for needing phototherapy um, changes. And I think their discussion was very good about how can that help us in, in sometimes uh, maybe even resource poor areas where how do we get um, the follow-up? Does it really have to be tomorrow? Uh, as we're, you know, discharging babies on Friday, we're rolling into a holiday weekend. You know, what does that look like practically and logistically for families? And And I think it's exactly right. The way I was sort of thinking about how to implement this in practice was, we have to have these discussions with the families on a daily basis mm-hmm. saying, hey, your baby's bilirubin level is sort of not high, but still not super low either. And here are the options. But now I feel like this data I will bring to the discussions with the families and saying, hey, we have an, op- an option of keeping your baby maybe a bit longer and following it up. Or you know that you can go get it checked at the pediatrician with a risk of needing uh, readmission for therapy that is as high as 50% within the mm-hmm. next 48 hours. And Without um, without forcing anything on the families, I think it will mm-hmm. give the families so much more information to make a decision that makes sense for their babies and for their families. Like you said, if uh, this is a single mother that has very low resources around her, maybe she'll elect to stay in the hospital one day more to follow the billy because to her... Uh, going to the pediatrician, potential readmissions would be extremely disruptive. Or you may have a family that has multiple children who would rather maybe go back home sooner, even if that means following up as an outpatient. Mm-hmm. So I think this is going to empower families to make a decision because every time uh, the parents have asked me, like, what do you think the Bill Rubin is going to mm-hmm. do tomorrow? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. So yeah, and I think any time that we can um, create a sh- kind of shared an opportunity for shared decision making, I think we should we should take it. Um, I also liked, and I, I'm sure that this resonates with you, that how simple this could be um, integrated into our kind of EMR to to do the calculation itself, um, yeah. further uh, reducing any kind of errors uh, in that and giving some sort of recommendation for, for follow-up. Uh, I'm not sure we'll all do that, but it's certainly um, an, an opportunity for quality improvement. Yeah. And I was also... Um 
we haven't really spoken about this, but I think the one thing that sort of um, popped into my head when the, the I was reading the paper for the first time was that, okay, there's the non Coombs positive, there's the Coombs negative babies and there's the Coombs, neg there's the Coombs negative and the Coombs positive babies. Because I have this feeling always since residency that the Coombs positive babies tend to have these huge dramatic jump in their mm -hmm. bilirubins that seemed very unpredictable. And so I was very happy to see that they accounted for that and that the model does work uh, even mm -hmm. in that category of babies. Yeah. And, and we know those are the babies that are, are likely to be, you know, readmitted. And, and so I thought that was uh, really important. Um, I, I would have liked to see or would like to see in the future um, uh, more of this, uh, maybe the same model using the kind of transcutaneous um, serum billies or transcutaneous billy measurements, um, since many places are moving away from routine serum um, measurements. So that would be the only thing that I'd like Absolutely. to see more of. Absolutely. But yes, I, I still think that the simplicity of the model is what makes it so attractive. Because again, mm -hmm. as they said, they said it themselves, they said the simplicity of the Delta TSB model is a strength. And I could not agree with them more because it feels like it's easy to manipulate. It's easy to enhance. It feels like it's within reach of everybody. And like you said, you could easily make an Excel calculator to incorporate that into your daily practice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think anytime we can make our daily practice easier than we That's should, right. Uh, yes. less less room for error um, and certainly anytime we can make the lives of parents easier we should um, I think that actually takes us to our next paper um, in in this uh, month's issue pediatrics uh, regarding medical device workarounds in providing care for children with medical complexity in the home um, so this paper uh, is by Barton et al. from the Uni University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so I think they really invested a lot um, in doing this study. So they were doing in-home interviews um, of caregivers whose uh, babies are medically complex um, and a part of their kind of complex care clinic. Um, and so this this cohort, uh, the babies, uh, to qualify just for their clinic, they need at least three body systems involved and at least three um, specialists involved in their care. Um, so certainly some of our most vulnerable babies um, or children, and uh, I think very much captures uh, some of our medically complex uh, NICU babies. So most of the babies had uh, G-tubes um, and 30% uh, had tracheostomy. Um, and of course, uh, they had a multitude of other complications. And so uh, they sent in two researchers to meet with the families in their home uh, to do some one-on-one -on -one interviews with the caregivers, but also to evaluate their home, take pictures, um, hear what their day-to-day -day, um, challenges are, uh, particularly regarding uh, their kind of medical devices, um, most of which, if we really think about it, are, are built for hospital use. Um, but as uh, we're having greater and greater successes in sending complex babies home to be with their loved ones, we're sending hospital grade equipment home. Um, and, you know, we, we commit to these families that will teach them how to use it. They'll be comfortable when they go home. They'll be safe when they go home. Um, but I think until we, you've really experienced what it's like to work with some of these things in the home environment, um, it's difficult to really, um, understand what that's yeah, like. And, and, and we'll go into each, each of the barriers that they've identified. There, there, there wasn't 
that many of them. I think mm -hmm. I highlighted there was there was four main four. barriers, but there's a few things about the data that I thought was very interesting. Number one, I have been advocating for us to start looking differently at the way we collect data in the NICU. I think length of stay, BPD, all these things are good and well, but we have to start looking at practical aspects of care and not just in the NICU, but around in and around the NICU including uh, the disruption that having a, a baby in the NICU causes for families. And even when a baby that's medically complex does go home, how difficult it is to manage. And there were a few things to me that I highlighted in the paper. So they, like you said, they, they, they collected data from 30 families, but then they looked at the caregivers were between the age of 20 and 78. And that sort of struck me as... Obviously, these are the extremes, but 20-year-old is extremely young and 78-year-old is extremely old to care for a medically complex baby. And I think when you take that into account, it makes it so much more important for the devices and the, and the medical sort of uh, care of the baby to adapt itself around those caregivers because these are caregivers that have, uh, that have needs and that, that need to be sort of catered to. Um, other, also, interestingly, is that um, so the average age was 38 years old of the caregivers. They were mostly female, 80% um, mm. female. That was also a statistic that I, was, that I was interested by because, again, it shows how the dynamic of having a baby in the NICU sort of shuffles the cards in, in this sort of way. And um, I don't know if there's uh, anything, anything, uh, anything wrong about the fact that it was 80% female, but it does, it does show the dramatic effect that having a medically complex baby enter the home has on a family. Um, Particularly mothers. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and the whole episode on that. <laughs> and, the, and the other thing that it made me think of, and this is a leap that I don't know if I'm allowed to make, but you're thinking, have these mothers sort of stopped working, give up a job that they were passionate mm -hmm. about to be able to care for their, for their ill child. And, and that's, that's to me, that's, that's very difficult for a family. And I feel like these, these mothers and these parents in general are being placed in, in these positions. And it's, and it's a stress that needs to be thought about, especially from our standpoint before discharge, to try to make this transition as, as best as we can make it for them. So Yeah, and, I, I, yeah, and I, you, I think you really hit on something that is particularly important now in this kind of peri-COVID era where, um, you know, we say to parents, well, we'll, we'll set you up with home nursing. And that's really not always the case. We can't guarantee full-time nursing. We can't even always guarantee part-time or any nursing um, for families and, and particularly for some of our colleagues who um, are working in, you know, uh, less uh, resource rich communities or rural communities. That's really um, a promise that we can't make to everybody. And so, uh, so the, the burden to families is high. And it's funny because it reminds me of when my wife and I were starting residency at the same time. And we had our daughter who was at the time like two years old. And we thought, should we, how are we going to deal with nannies? And we thought maybe we should hire a live-in nanny, which was funny that we even thought about that because we were living in, in New York City in a very small two-bedroom apartment. And then we thought about it and we said, where is she going to be? Like, where is she going to stay? And then we said, it's going to be so crowded and it's going to, we're going to have this, I guess, quote unquote, stranger in the house. And we're like, you know, we'll, we'll find a different solution. But it made, it always makes me think of, of my own experience when we say, oh, you'll, you'll have a nurse at home as this, as if this is the best, the best solution in the world. It's true. It's very good that somebody can attend to the baby, but it is a strange presence in the home. And 
not everybody lives in a mansion. I mean, it's if you live in a small apartment, you get yeah. it gets crowded very quickly. And so even that, which appears to us as a very strong solution, is doesn't mitigate everything. Yeah, and I think uh, space is one of the major issues that actually these families had um, in in uh, dealing with their medical devices. So the top the top four uh, kind of problems, I guess, uh, uh-huh. barriers as they they titled them, are when you really read them, they're they're significant, right? So the first quantity and type of devices allotted do not meet family needs. Uh, and so this was really about, um, do they have the supplies, uh, that best fit the equipment that are most optimal for the care and do they have enough or can they keep, maybe you discharge them with enough, but this is a life, you know, a few months, few years for some of these children is a lifelong thing. Um, and so can they continue to get the devices, uh, the supplies that they need? Yeah. And, uh, to- and, 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 the, and their workarounds was that, that they, they, uh, the family said to address this barrier, families described washing and reusing single-use supplies. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of didn't make me feel too bad because it made me wonder, you know, in the United States, we, we have a lot of resources and sometimes things that are here single-use are many on, on, in many other countries not single-use. Mm-hmm. And is there a potential for us to reuse some of our single, quote-unquote, single-use equipment? Maybe, um, even though that's not optimal. But the one thing that struck me was that one fam- it says right in that, in that paragraph, one family described collecting their used mm-hmm. syringes during a hospital stay to wash and reuse at home. And that, um, I mean, that, that was a little bit striking because number one, I think families shouldn't have to do that, number one. But number two, where is the communication breaking down that the families cannot communicate with the hospital? Hey, we're out of syringes. We need more syringes without them having to sort of scavenge the syringes used in the room. And I thought, um, again, going back to how can we bring this to the bedside, if a patient gets readmitted and it's a medically complex child, maybe we can ask the families, do you have everything you need at home? Do you need extra supplies? And avoid having them sort of gather old syringes in the room because I don't know why, maybe they're ashamed, maybe they don't want to ask but this is up to us to make this, to create this bridge so that they can voice their needs when it comes to the, the supplies of their child. Yeah. And to take a step further, I think when we're first discharging parents home, especially from the NICU, right? So they haven't even experienced it yet. They don't, they don't actually know what they need. Um, and for us to even think, you know, long-term about, okay, this is what you need for like a week. We're discharging you home with supplies for a week. You know, what does that mean times four times 12 months, you know, and, and moving forward. And for our, for a lot of our families, just planning ahead to get enough diapers or wipes is, is really a strain. And that's where I think the families of former NICU babies who have gone home in a medically complex situation can be very helpful. If a Mm -hmm. family that, that was discharged can call a family that says, Hey, here's, here's what my experience was. Here's what you need. Make sure you ask them to give Mm -hmm. you an extra circuit for X, an extra syringe for Y, uh, that can be very helpful. And it could create these networks of families that support each other through their discharge and, 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 and onward. Absolutely. The the second barrier, devices not designed to be used in the locations families require. And I I would argue that most of them aren't designed to be to be used in the home. But I think um, what was striking to me is especially some of the workarounds um, 
parents had to engage with to get their kids out of the house. Yeah. Um, they did all sorts of sort of tweaks and DIY techniques using Velcro bungee cords and, and all sorts of things to try to make the medical device sort of fit um, either a, a wheelchair, a stroller, things like that. Um, but yeah, I have... Car, car seat. Having worked um, significantly on, on ventilations and ventilators in the BPD program at uh, Jolie Maggio and now, and now at, at Nova, um, we're, I'm seeing from a lot of the manufacturers that they're taking that into account. Mm-hmm. So the home vents are now designed to, have, to be much more compact. They're designed to have multiple batteries so that parents wouldn't be sort of strapped for uh, sort of energy sources outside the house. And also the screens have now all these features that can make them sort of dimmer and really so that they're less in, in, in uh, less intrusive in the in the home environment so hopefully this is an issue that in from my perspective I thought at least we're making some progress yeah I agree I think individual companies are are trying to do the right thing they're trying to you know be the the one that people want to want to purchase right or want mm-hmm. to have on stock because um, it has better you know, reviews and, and, um, patient satisfaction. But unfortunately I think parents are in the situation where they don't have just one device. They have one, two, three, four devices, um, and only two hands. And so, you know, how do they, how do they juggle all of those that are, that are individually, you know, uh, improving, but, um, still don't kind of adequately support the burden. And I think I jumped onto barrier number three, um, Mm -hmm. Where, where the barrier number three was device use is physically or organizationally disruptive to the home. So obviously, mm-hmm. they talked about uh, being noisy and physically disruptive. But in that, go ahead. You were going to say something. No, I, I mean, I think this is the one we hear most often, most most commonly. The one that the, what struck me is that in the workarounds, the paper quotes a family saying, families also noted that if a device was too disruptive, they stopped using it. Yeah. And and that gives you some of the magnitude of why this is important. Because yes, parents are not going to put up with disruptive equipment forever, and um, and they'll they they may even stop using it. And so that gives us even more incentive to come up with better solutions. Yeah, it's hard as um, you know someone who sees babies and follow up, and for you to think, well, gosh, you know, we thought your baby needed this, and you guys just stopped using it, but it's, 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 it's one of those things where it's so easy for us to judge when we, we can't, we're not in the home and we, we don't understand the magnitude of like the sleep deprivation or, you know, the machines waking up other children in the house or waking up the, the, you know, the patient themselves. And so we just can't, we just can't understand it if, if we've not been there. And so, you know, I, I, families are just trying to do the best they can, you know, Absolutely. given their circumstances. So um, I think this is one we have to think about. We have to really um, provide anticipatory guidance for families um, about how disruptive it can be. So they're, you know, at least not, not surprised. And it, and it made me wonder that maybe the families will stop using it and they may not even disclose that to the doctor if Absolutely. they're a bit ashamed of that. So I think it's important for us to say, hey, you know, if the if the machine is disruptive, let us know because there are settings in the machine that we can use to make the, the, the alarms less uh, noisy. And there's many things that we can do so that the families know that they don't have to stop using it, but they can just bring it up at their next follow-up visit. And then we can go into the the sort of advanced settings of the vent or of the pump and just make sure that it doesn't alarm as loud and wakes up the other kids. Yeah. And at a, at a minimum, 
we should know, right, what the, what the patients are using and not using. And so uh, kind of creating an environment of openness and say, you know what, lots of families aren't, you know, are having trouble tolerating this. How's it going? You know, uh, is there something we can do to, to simplify that, to change that, or, you know, to make the environment more safe if you're not going to use it? Um, Bar- that- barrier number four. Mm-hmm was device not designed to fit the user. Again, I think there's a lot of overlap sometimes, but yeah. Um, I, I the, the families described barriers related to receiving medical equipment that did not appropriately fit their child or was not conducive to optimal use by the caregiver. One of the examples that they were giving was the bed height, and they showed the workaround where um, a parent had to create sort of... Um, sort of these uh, risers on the bed on the bed's legs so that the, the carrying the baby in and out of bed would not strain the caregiver's back. Uh, so I thought that was also a very uh, a very important aspect of these barriers. Yeah, I you know, I'm not I'm not surprised by any of these things here. I I know intuitively that going home with a medically complex child is difficult for families, but mm-hmm. um you know, I, I tend to focus on kind of the emotional burden, the physical exhaustion, but this kind of these logistical challenges are are uh, overwhelming. To, mm-hmm. I think, and and I, I think uh, collectively, it's something we can work on. We can, you know, advocate for companies to do better, to include parents in their, um, you know, next design. Um, I think I think there are ways that we can advocate for that and. Uh, I just, it's a good reminder. I always say that NICU parents are uh, really some of the most resilient people that I have ever met. And, and unfortunately, this this reminds me that they're also some of the most resourceful, you know, uh, families mm-hmm. of medically complex children get the job done, you know, one way or another. And it's it's tough. Absolutely. And I think this, this leads into this other, this other mm-hmm. paper that was published in Pediatrics this month. And I'm not sure if they specifically waited for these two papers to be published at the same time. This paper is called Mortality Among Parents of Children with Major Congenital Anomalies. And it was the first author is Dr. Anne Fuller. And uh, this is coming from a group out of uh, Canada. Uh, the, the, the background and the objective is to really talk about the long-term health of fathers of and, and mothers of infants with major congenital anomalies. And they looked at, uh, in a population-based prospective cohort study uh, using the uh, Danish registry, they looked at mortality of mothers and fathers of babies who have major congenital anomalies and compare them to uh, parents of children who did not have major congenital anomalies. And the main result and the main conclusion of their findings was that the mortality of the parents of baby, of children with major congenital anomalies was significantly higher. And, um, and obviously, to me, that that was a that that's a that's a massive sort of finding, and uh, it gave me a lot to think about. What, what were your thoughts, uh, Daphna? Yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised by the data, but I think that we are just really starting to quantify um, the 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 trauma and mm-hmm. uh, the ongoing um, stress of how. Uh, you know, NICU admission or really uh, life with a complex child, um, how that 
strains um, parents. Uh, you know, I think I'm glad that we're paying more attention to it. Uh, there's definitely some good things that are coming uh, from this attention. Uh, you know, I know the our TCAN uh, group for early career neonatologists through the AAP is starting to um, put together some resources exactly to help uh, providers um work with families to mitigate some of the stress or at least um, bring attention to, to, how it, to how it's affecting them. Um, so, you know, previous literature shows that um, certainly uh, they've mostly focused on mothers and that's maybe how this paper differs a little bit, but that mothers um, of preterm infants are, are more likely to have early death. And actually I was su surprised to kind of reread some of those studies and that the highest risk of early death was in the first 10 years um, after a preterm uh, delivery. And, and maybe some of that has to do with the preterm um, complications. Um, but uh, I think we can't underscore how much the ongoing um, stress affects uh, our cardiovascular health. Um, and that's something that this paper touched on uh, that, uh, you know, most of the deaths, and again, the follow-up ranged uh, from nine to 25 years, median of 18 years. So of course, still most of our parents were living at the end of the study follow-up period, um, but that uh, most of the deaths were, were cardiovascular in nature. Um, and so it, it really speaks to how much our kind of stress response Response uh, affects, uh, you know, the uh, development your, your, of metabolic syndrome, um, and and the long term effects that you know we can't really even adequately account for until we until we follow all parents uh, to to uh, kind of death death outcome. Um, it, it made me it made me uh, think of the fact that this paper probably should be also uh, co published in an adult journal. I feel like it's showing that having a child with major congenital anomalies is now a new risk factor for mortality and that family practitioners, internal medicine physicians should now take that into account in how they're going to sort of follow up these parents, follow up these uh, mothers and fathers in terms of their treatment and, and the routine labs and, and all these different things, knowing that there's a child with major congenital anomaly in the home being a huge risk factor for increased mortality, uh, metabolic syndromes, hypertension, and so on and so forth. Um, the data from the paper show that, for example, in the case of fathers, the, the, um, the uh, adjusted hazard ratio was one point, uh, for mortality was 1.62 for parents with no uh, child with MCA, uh, major congenital anomalies, versus 1.76 in the fathers who had the child with MCA. And in mothers, it went from 1.0 to 1.2 for mothers of children with major congenital anomalies. Uh, so yeah, I think this is very important for our adult colleagues to be aware of as well. And uh, we have to disseminate this evidence to them so that they can take care of these parents appropriately because it really falls out of our purview when it comes to managing these parents. Yeah, and I, I think it just it touches uh, on another point that, you know, uh, the NICU in particular is a place that becomes very mother centric. Um, and, you know, we want fathers to be engaged in care um, and we just we're not studying them enough. We're not good at including them in care. We're not good at, um, you know, uh, 
monitoring, you know, how, how, what the fallout is for parents, even though the data is coming out really, I think pretty strongly for mothers. And we, we know that fathers are affected too, and they may be affected in a different way. Um, but certainly the, the effect is, is there. So, um, I was glad to see this paper. I think it certainly adds to the literature. Um, I think you're right that, you know, the audience needs to be broadened so that we can protect these parents. Um, and kind of my review for this, I, I was looking at um, uh, the literature, too, for parents who experience the death of a child. Um, and they have 30 percent more likelihood uh, to experience early mortality. Um, and most of those deaths are also um related to heart disease. And so um, the effect is is not insignificant. Um, and so we need to think about how we can um, support the the mental health, which translates really to, to physical health and longevity of parents. Absolutely. There was one other aspect of the paper, and I lost all my notes on this paper now, just I don't know why my iPad is doing that. But I remember that it mentioned that the predisposing factors of these mothers of children with major congenital anomalies were different from the ones of uh, healthy, I guess, quote unquote, healthy children. And it, and it paused a question that was very interesting, which was in their discussion, they mentioned an, an alternative explanation could be that infants and parents share a common genetic predisposition, mm -hmm. environmental exposure, or health behaviors that lead to both anomaly and the parental illness. And I think this was a very interesting uh, point that I was happily surprised to see that they brought up in their discussion because it is a chicken and the egg phenomenon, which is if, if the parents have any type of predisposition or if there's any epigenetic phenomenon that is causing the baby to be born with those major congenital anomalies, could, this just, could the parental then increased rate of mortality be related to this initial sort of predisposition, as they mentioned? And... And that's why I think this paper was so impactful because it shows how proper health supervision and proper healthy habits are necessary before conception and after delivery and even after discharge. And it sort of spans such a wide time frame that, uh, I mean, it really feels like the magnitude of it is, is sort of overwhelming, but it is true that... Uh, that it's 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 you wonder which one is responsible is it is it that the the child with major congenital anomalies is so disruptive to this family that it's causing stress and eventually sort of physical sort of uh, um, health issues or is it that parental sort of habits cause the baby to be born with gen with the genetics of this genetic predisposition cause major congenital anomalies and then this sort of is a snowball effect that leads eventually to increased mortality of parents it's just mind-boggling to think about it and see how all these different things tie in together it's 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 uh yeah it's tough yeah and i think it, it does point to how some of these uh you know large um national registries can help us answer some of these these questions and you know in a country where we don't have that kind of a database um we will really rely on on um other countries to do to do that work for us yeah yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, that was a fascinating paper. And that logarithmic curve showing the increased mortality of mm. mothers and fathers is, is very impressive. Okay. Um, I think the last paper for Journal of, uh, for pediatrics specifically is, um, is a paper from um, Dr. Meren Dudazia. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Um, uh, from uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia using data from Kaiser Permanente. And the paper is called Intrapartum Group B Streptococcal Prophylaxis and Childhood Allergic Disorders. 
And um, this paper was interesting because it poses an interesting question, which is, can GBS prophylaxis disrupt the microbiome of the baby such that to cause allergies uh, later into childhood? And they conducted this retrospective studies of 14,000 children uh, where the mothers received GBS prophylaxis using penicillin, ampicillin, cefazolin, clindamycin, vancomycin more than four hours before delivery. And they followed uh, these children for primary outcome of asthma, eczema, or food, food allergies uh, within the first five years of age. And um, their results was that GBS prophylaxis was not associated with increased incidence of composite outcome among infants delivered both vaginally and via C-section. And so I think it was it was interesting because um, I was happy that it, <laughs> I guess from my standpoint, I was happy that GBS prophylaxis doesn't mm -hmm. cause allergic diseases in, into childhood, but also it paused a question I never thought of. I never thought of GBS prophylaxis as potentially disrupting the microbiome of the baby really long-term. So mm -hmm. I, I was happy that somebody addressed it. Yeah, and I think it it, uh, it provides for more questions, right? That, that well, I think when we talk about the microbiome and you know the theory uh, about how microbiome affects um, long term uh, health outcomes, um, I think there are some other you know questions that that we could ask. Um, I was a little bit surprised, you know, given there's kind of some controversial associations with C-section delivery um, and concerns about long term um, ATP just from, you know, being delivered C by C-section versus uh, vaginally. Um, and as someone who admittedly had a C-section delivery, this is something, you know, that I wonder about and think about kind of in my, in my own life. So I thought it was interesting that, um, that they didn't find, even in their cohort, um, they didn't find a, a difference between uh, the two modes of, of delivery. Um, mm -hmm. I was Absolutely. glad uh, that they did evaluate some of the maternal um, history, which I think is hard uh, to do, uh, especially in kind of retrospective chart review. Um, but they did yeah. make the effort to look at maternal um, allergic disorders, asthma, um, maternal allergy, and then uh, specifically uh, chorioamnionitis, um, which we know um, can predict childhood asthma. So um, mm -hmm. I'm glad that they covered uh, those um, kind of co-founders, uh, though, again, I'm sure it was difficult to, to ensure that through through the chart review. But I will say um, that I think one of the, the um, strengths is that uh, in their documentation of the childhood allergy, um, that yeah. they, you know, require recurrent documentation, they had really good follow-up, um, and that um, the ICD codes were paired with a prescription. So I, I thought that was definitely a strength in trying to capture um, what does um, kind of the allergic population look like. Yeah, the group was very thorough. Um, they looked at neonatal antibiotic use, the rates of breastfeeding. Um, so no, they, they did a very good job, in my opinion, to try to mitigate all the potential co-founders that would immediately pop to mind. Um, and so they, they did a very good job at, at that. So, so no, it was definitely a thorough study. And uh, no, a very interesting results uh, to a very interesting question that most likely we will never be faced with as neonatologists. I'm assuming the OBs are probably getting that question more. <laughs> but yeah, there you go. The data is there now. And I think it highlighted some of the, um, the other uh, kind of variables and um, 
really disparities that we have in, in our population um, specifically. And this is not new information, but I think it's important to highlight that, um, you know, the need for GBS prophylaxis um, in, in both uh, types of delivery um, were associated um, with a variety of uh, specific uh, factors. Um, certainly, um, a black or Asian maternal race, high maternal BMI, maternal history uh, of asthma or allergy, um, and then residents in areas of low education uh, and income. Um, and specifically, uh, those were almost the identical factors that individually predisposed to allergic conditions um, in, in childhood. And so, you know, none of that is surprising, but it's a it's a good reminder. Um, I I feel like especially in our uh, BPD population, parents are always inquiring about asthma, and you know I think that we we have uh, some data to help uh, them better predict uh, which babies are are most at risk, um, and certainly gives us some areas of of improvement uh, of advocacy to focus on and to to try to change some of those outcomes. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. Um, before we move on to JAMAPEDS, I think I'd, we, we, there was another paper that I think uh, maybe the listeners would be interested in knowing about. It's called Trends in Retinopathy of Prematurity Screening and Treatment, 2008 to 2018. Um, the paper is from uh, Dr. Grace Prakalapakorn. And uh, this is data from the Vermont Oxford Network that looks at sort of the trends in retinopathy screening and treatment over the past 10 years. And um, it showed, I, I want, I, it's a good paper because it, it provides data that is necessary, but it was not very surprising in any way. It showed basically um, looking at the data from the Vaughn Network, looking at the, at the trends in screening and treatment and, and the findings of 381,000 very low birth weight infants uh, across 819 U.S. NICUs show that um, basically infants received, uh, more eligible infants over time received ROP screening. Uh, among those screened, overall ROP, severe ROP, and retinal ablation declined. And interestingly enough, antivascular endothelial growth factor injection increased. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, I think uh, we didn't really, uh, yeah, I was not really surprised by all this. And uh, I'm curious to see if you had any insight or any thoughts about this paper. No, I think that even the authors felt like they weren't surprised by the the data, but I, I think it's useful for us to have. It's a, useful uh, for us to see um, what's uh, really changing, um, you know, for, for some of our subspecialists. Uh, they did spend some time in discussion about how 10% of their um, group uh, were actually not screened uh, in the in the time frame. And again, they used a gestational age less than 29 weeks um, and a birth weight less than 1500 grams. Um, and, and the, the, fallouts, so to speak, are, are those babies that I think we encounter all the time. You know, maybe they don't meet both criteria or uh, maybe they're so close to the um, uh, the cutoff. You know, we're not sure what to what to do with those babies. So the majority of those babies were older, uh, only met one criteria or, um, you know, the weight, the weight was was close. And, and some institutions are not using 15 grams. Um, right. So that's that's definitely, I think, uh, a point for discussion and always um, in our individual units uh, to say, how can we avoid missing babies or, um, you know, make sure that our, all of our screening gets done on time? 
Yeah, and and uh, and and that was that was a bit striking that ten percent would be sort of falling through the cracks. The other thing that that might um, change over time, I think, it's the use of antivascular endothelial growth factor injections. I think this is something that that was extremely promising uh, about ten years ago, and as the data about long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes of babies who undergone who have undergone sort of uh, these injections compared to laser uh, is showing that there's a detrimental effect of uh, of these endothelial growth factor injections injections um, of these antivascular endothelial growth factor injections, well, it, it makes you wonder if that trend is going to get reversed in the mm. next 10 years. So I'm curious to see what the follow-up paper is going to show. Yeah. And I, I think there's still some, you know, debate, debate in the literature. I think, you know, we're still waiting on some of the long-term uh, follow-up data. So I, I think it will direct care for sure. And I think like everything in neonatology, it's going to boil down to there's going to be some criteria that are going to be published that says, well, for this specific group of patients, Avastin works really well. For this group of patients, laser works better. And I think it's going to be depending on ROP uh, stages and the zones, specifically whether you're in zone one versus zone two and three. So every yeah, I think it's going to end up being a bit more granular and it's going to be a bit more sophisticated in how we approach the different treatment modalities that are now available to us. One, I, I mean, I think that's the key, right? Just working towards individualizing medicine uh, and really kind yeah. of hammering out the data about, uh, you know, splitting babies into into groups, the right group, um, and deciding what works best. And and I actually think um, that that takes us into our uh, GMA article um, for this month, uh, the association between preterm birth phenotype and differential morbidity, growth, and neurodevelopment at age two years. Um, and so I thought this was a fascinating paper. Um, I uh, really care about, you know, um, good anticipatory guidance and... Um, so... So, so for the people who haven't read the paper, this was, I know yours, I know you, that you have a lot to say about this. So, I'm just, so hold your horses and I'm going to, I'm going to just give uh, the listeners a quick summary. It was published. Uh, first author is Dr. Jose Villar, and this is from a group out of the United Kingdom. Uh, the objective of the paper was to examine the association between specific preterm birth phenotypes and clinical growth and neurodevelopmental differences among preterm newborns compared with term newborns to age two years. Uh, the main outcomes were infant size, health, nutrition, um, WHO motor development milestones assessed at ages one and two years, neurodevelopment evaluated at age two years using the Intergrowth 21st uh, Neurodevelopmental Assessment Tool. Um, what their findings, um, so, so they were able to identify, they, they studied um, um they studied uh, they, uh, they included in their analysis about 7000 babies and they were able to identify eight phenotypes the one, they and they were defined as follows no maternal fetal or placental condition detected i guess completely normal then there's infections then there's preeclampsia fetal distress iugr severe maternal disease bleeding and congenital anomalies uh, and then in their conclusions their results show that compared with term newborns the highest risk for scoring lower than the 10th percentile on the inter-NDA normative values was, observe, was observed in the fine motor development domain among newborns with the fetal distress phenotype. They're saying that these results uh, suggest that phenotypic classification may provide better understanding of the ideologic factors and mechanism associated with preterm birth than continuing to consider it an exclusively time-based time entity. 
So go ahead, Daphne, tell us your <laughs> thoughts about this. Well, I mean, first to, to, to credit the group, I, I mean, they had um, babies from all across the world, basically in- included, which I, I thought was impressive. Kenya, South Africa, Thailand, Brazil, Pakistan, um, and of, of course, the largest uh, group there in the UK. Um, they did take babies uh, from 23 uh, weeks gestation to 37 weeks gestation, though their, their mean gestational age was 34 weeks. Um, so I, I think that if we maybe even had a group of uh more preterm babies that that the the data I imagine would be pretty similar, but um, like you said, we could get a little bit more granular. They had, I think, excellent follow up. So they had almost eighty percent follow up at one year and up to seventy percent follow up at two years. Um, so I, you know, I think that they gave us some really good data to to work with. Um, some of the other findings um, are that the, you know, you talked about the neurodevelopmental uh, findings that a fine motor delay uh, was high among all phenotypes. Uh, so, you know, that really shows that just prematurity in, in and of itself without any comorbidities um, affects uh, development, particularly in fine motor. Um, the babies who had the highest mortality uh, were the babies uh, in the bleeding, infections, and congenital anomaly groups, um, independent of gestational age. The babies that had the highest risk of neurologic disorders were in the bleeding IUGR and fetal distress groups. Um, And then the highest risk of, uh, like you said, severe clinical conditions, IUGR bleeding um, and congenital anomaly. Um, I, I, I thought uh, you know, that this is something that we really need to start paying attention to. So much of the maternal history or pregnancy history, we write down in the HNP and we used in the first maybe 72 hours to make decisions about uh, antibiotics or about feeding progression. Um, but we're not really using it as part of our prognosis uh, for, for parents. And this, this, this is almost uh, kind of reminiscent of the discussion we had um, in our first episode about um, uh, MRI, you know, findings and ultrasound findings and and how can we really counsel parents and give them the best information about their long-term prognosis. And so um, I think this is so important um, to, uh, you know, one, reducing some of the burden, mental burden associated uh, with prematurity by, by being able to give parents kind of more information. Um, and and two, ensuring that we get the best developmental follow-up for the babies who are at most risk. Um, and so I hope we see more papers like this. Um, I hope that we are using uh, it at least preliminarily to talk about with some of these additional risk factors um, like, uh, you know, IUGR, uh, the babies who had a perinatal infection. And then I, I think it really gives me more pause about those babies born for fetal distress. And we don't know why they were born for fetal distress, you know, or what, what was the cause of fetal distress. And there are so many causes of fetal distress. Um, but certainly we know um, that things like, you know, hypoxia are a, a big predisposing uh, factor to fetal distress, certainly um, could predict kind of some neurodevelopmental outcomes. Absolutely. I think um, I, I completely echo your sentiment that it shows us how we should be thinking about these preterm babies um, and that starting to think about them in terms of their phenotype based on their clinical course before delivery makes a huge difference. 
um, I also completely agree with you that right now this paper is is looking at a few items, infant size, nutrition, um, and some neurodevelopmental milestones. But I'm very curious to see a broad spectrum sort of study looking at short-term morbidities and mortalities associated with different phenotypes. But I also think this paper is the, is the product of where our field is going overall. I think until now, it was all about, let's get some premies to survive. And they were all bundled together. And we've become over the past 20, 30 years, really good at saving 26, 27, 28, 29 weekers, um, maybe less so below 25 weeks. It's still remaining a big challenge uh, in many places. But for those babies, I feel like since our technology and our knowledge has become so strong, it is now time to tease apart all these different babies and stop bundling mm -hmm. them as like these ELBWs. They're not just ELBWs anymore. And uh, we have to see who they are, why they were born early. And, and again, always creating the link between the baby and the mother. Mm -hmm. We tend to feel like once a baby is born, it's like a, a hand of poker. You know, we've been dealt a few cards and we just have to play those cards. But no, it's the baby is directly connected to the mother, even after delivery. And it's interesting that the phenotype of preeclampsia is there as well, severe maternal disease, bleeding, all these things that you would think, well, these are maternal issues. And so the baby is quote unquote fine. Well, that's not the case. And that needs to be looked at uh, more inten intensively. I know that there's a lot of data looking at outcomes of preeclampsia, for example, mm -hmm. but um, I'm just very happy about the development of a new approach to the thinking of prematurity. So, um, yeah, this paper got me really excited about uh, thinking about things a bit different. Yeah, I think it's going to force us to adapt our algorithms. Uh, you know, that we can't just have these kind of sweeping protocols for all of our, you know, tiny babies that that, that we will have to, um, uh, you, like you said, play, play to the strengths of the babies, but certainly um, be aware of some of um, the additional complications that are, are not just a factor of gestational age. And practically speaking... I think when you're admitting a patient to the NICU and you're putting in their list of diagnoses, mm -hmm. you would never put preeclampsia, for example. But now it makes you wonder, should we put some of these maternal conditions in the baby's chart so that we are reminded of the phenotype that this baby belongs to mm -hmm. in order to anticipate some of the complications that we now know are associated with them? Something to think about. Well, I think we'll start doing that, won't we? Mm -hmm. <laughs> At least in our More, more documents. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I guess we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. uh, we're now, but but it's okay. I mean, we have one more paper that was uh, interesting that recently came out in JAMA Peds. And this paper is called Fortification of Breast Milk with Preterm Formula Powder versus Human Milk Fortifier in Preterm Neonates, a randomized non-inferiority trial. The, the trial uh, was conducted by first author, Dr. Ch Chinapan, and this is data coming out of India. The objective of the paper was to demonstrate that fortification of EBM by preterm formula powder is not inferior to fortification by HMF in, term, uh, in terms of short-term weight gain in VLBW neonates. And this was an open-label, non-inferiority, randomized trial conducted between 2017 and 2019 at a level three unit in India. Um, the neonates were randomized to either um, this, this powdered formula called PTF or HMF, and uh, the main outcomes were weight gain until discharge um, from the hospital or 40 weeks post-menstrual post age, whichever was earlier. 
And um, their main conclusion was that fortification with preterm formula powder is not inferior to fortification with human milk fortifier in preterm neonates, given the possible reduction in uh, feed intolerance and lower cost, preterm formula might be a better option for fortification, especially in resource restricted settings. Mm-hmm. And what they're referring to was that they did notice a few, um, in terms of their outcomes, they did notice less intolerance to um, powdered formula supplementation. Uh, they noted a little bit less NEC, even though that was not really statistically significant. Um, and so um, the, the the number, the proportion of times in whom fortification had to be withheld was lower also in the powdered formula. So they did find some advantages as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it came to uh, differences in sepsis, culture uh, mortality, culture-positive sepsis, metabolic bone disease, IVH, PDA, ROP, BPD, that was sort of similar between the two groups. So... Yeah, I'm curious to see what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, and I think um, importantly, one of the one of their outcomes that they didn't find any difference in the um, longitudinal uh, postnatal growth, um, either in height or weight, uh, even given the the difference in protein um, between the two products. So I got to say, I was surprised by by the by some of the findings. Um, it uh, was 120 infants. They were uh, randomly assigned almost uh, exactly in half to. To either group, um, I I'd love to see a, a bigger trial. Um, I think uh, just to see some, you know, how would some of those other factors that didn't reach uh, significance would would play out? Um, but I, I would be I would be interested in in this. Um, this is was done in India, which is which which they describe themselves as sort of a a low to uh, middle resources sort of uh, area. But I'm thinking even in a in a high resource area, looking at the different fortification, the the Similac HMF versus regular HMF versus Prolacta versus powdered formula, all these things I think would be very beneficial even for us. Well, and I, I think we're we've almost gotten to a point where. Um uh, in some places, it's it's hard to do this type of study um, because we kind of have this bias that we we've selected one and we think that's the safest uh, thing for for babies. So it, it actually has kind of eliminated some of the research opportunities in this area. But um, I think uh, it certainly gives us something to to think about about you know doing a, a study like you said with kind of more arms. Um, made me thinking twice about, again, the individual baby and what's right for that specific baby. Do we, you know, in, in our units that we're using HMF until a certain gestational age threshold and the baby's not growing well on, on what we're doing, uh, could we try a different product? Could we try a different formulation? Could we transition so, them soon? Right. So there's there's two things that I noted from the study that I think are are to take with a grain of salt, not because they were bad, but because it, it impacts how generalizable the data is. Number one, their babies were quite old in terms of gestation. The mean gestational age was um, 30.5 weeks with a standard deviation of 2.2 weeks in the preterm formula fortification group and 29.9 in the human milk fortifier group. So they were not 23-weekers. That's number one. The other factor that I thought was a bit different from how I'm used at least to practice is that their target feed volumes reached uh, consistently 180 ml per kilo per day, which I don't think is bad. I just I'm just saying that this is something that I'm not used to doing, and I'm wondering if, in terms of growth specifically, um, if this would change if suddenly we had a lower target volume. So if you're targeting our usual 150, 160, even 135 in 
BPD patients, would that impact the amount of proteins that these babies would be receiving, vitamin D and things like that? I don't know. Um, however, what I think is very useful about this study is that, yes, uh, it's testing s- something that may not appear to be a problem to us, but I have encountered so many families that have questions about using HMF and looking for alternatives. And like you said, because we're used to doing something one way and and not really entertaining other alternatives, it's hard for us to give options to these families. And so I feel like if a family is saying, hey, I don't want to give my baby HMF, is there any other options? Well, if they elect to go for preterm formula supplementation, well, now at least I have data to say, you know what, it's not going to impact the baby's growth and complications are not going to be significantly impacted. So I feel like even for us in the US, this may serve a specific group of parents who have questions about the use of human milk fortified. Well, and I, I think they touch on to some some you know some kind of biological plausibility to to some of their findings, and and a big one was about uh, the total um, uh, osmolality of, of, of the formulas, and 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 that matters, right? And and in different formulations of the same. Uh, type of fortifier, uh, the, the, that changes. And so, um, you know, it's something we definitely need to think about. And for their HMF product, uh, the osmolality is 464 versus the preterm formula of 357, which is um, no, no small difference, uh, you know, and, and is right there along the, the you know, uh, threshold uh, for what we think of for the extremely preterm uh, infant. Um, the other thing that, you know, it really, it really is a good reminder about um, how I know exactly what I know exactly what you're going to talk about now. Go ahead. Well, we'll see. We'll see um, about how some of the other additives impact, um, you know, the overall feeding progress. And for some of our babies, if we look at the list of medications that they're on and the additives that we are, you know, um, reacting to their vitamin D levels, their anemia, you know, uh, when you really uh, take, take a look at the, how much that, that tiny preterm intestine has to tolerate. It's, it's really incredible that we can ever feed babies <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it's, and it also, at the end of the day, I'm really appreciative of a group putting cost in the equation. I think um, as doctors, thankfully, we don't think too much about cost because it shouldn't be driving how we practice medicine. We have to give babies what the best treatments possible avail- and the, whatever's the best treatment available. But it is true that cost is an issue and we have to be mindful of how much resources we're consuming, especially when alternatives are available that might be sort of less uh, of a burden on both the parents in the U.S. because parents have to shoulder, uh, shoulder the, 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 the bill and in other sort of socialized countries where the state has to really uh, pick up the, the tab at the end of a hospitalization. So I think always thinking in terms of uh, cost analysis really uh, is something that is valuable. Okay, so we tried to look at some of the articles in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was not really anything particular regarding neonatology. There were two interesting clinical images, one of them of a closed gastroschisis and another one of visual peristalsis in a newborn uh, preterm infant. I invite you to go check them out. They're kind of cool pictures and videos. But other than that, I think that's it for our uh, second journal club and episode number three. Uh, any uh, any other uh, final thoughts, Daphna? 
No, we're just welcoming more listeners. And thanks for everybody for kind of hanging in with us uh, today as we went a little bit long. Uh, ben, it's a pleasure as always. No, but it was, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I'm and then, and we have a... And we have a lot of cool episodes scheduled with a lot of interesting collaborations between uh, us and um, and other people and organizations. So there's going to be a lot of great content coming uh, coming your way. Uh, so yeah, subscribe and uh, and we'll see you next week. Daphna, thank you very much as always. Have a good one. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.